I invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't done so already, and turn to the book of John. We're going to be in the 12th chapter. Somebody came in today and asked me, are we still in John? And I said, yes, we're in John 12. And he said, we got a ways to go. <laughs> and that's very true. We're going to be in John 12 today, looking at verses 12 through 19. As I mentioned earlier in the, passage, or in the message today, um, this is a passage that we often think uh, and we often look at around Easter, because this usually comes, uh, this usually is, is looked at at the Sunday before Easter, which we call Palm Sunday, um, because this has to do with what many call the triumphal entry as Jesus enters Jerusalem during the Passion Week. So we're going to look at John 12, verses 12 through 19, and talk about the Lamb's arrival. I invite you to follow along as we read John 12, 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason, the, the, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Father, we thank you for the time in our service that we have set aside to just study and look at, meditate on, and apply the word of God to our lives. And we ask that today you would quiet our hearts and our minds, and you would meet with us. Your Holy Spirit would do your work in our heart today. Lord, I, I don't know the heart of every person who has come through the door today. I don't know the burdens they carry. I don't know the conviction that you have put on them, even on their lives. Lord, I pray that today you would continue to do whatever that work is in their hearts you have begun. Continue to do that work today. Soften hearts towards you. May one who has never trusted you as Savior be confronted again with the truth of who you are and their need to place their belief, their full faith and trust in you. Lord, Christians today, would you show us again the need that we have in our life to continue to live for you, to give our lives in service of you, obeying you, following you, and realizing that that is the path that we, that we must walk if we want to see true joy in our hearts and lives. It comes only from you. Pray that you would be honored and glorified in what is said and done here today. In your name we pray. Amen. Sometimes we project what we think we need or what really what we want into our circumstances and situations. Uh, that creates confusion, it creates misunderstandings, and, and other things. Perhaps you've experienced this in your life even in the past week where there was something you thought you needed or something you just wanted. You begin to project that into the things that were going on or the relationships in your life, and it began to create some of these things around you. You know, we we thought we heard our spouse say one thing, but it really was nothing even close to what we thought we heard. We assumed 
our boss at work meant this by his actions and words, but in reality it wasn't true. And these, these misunderstandings and these projections that we place on other people, they can have varying consequences. Sometimes it just results in a comical confusion or a frustrating moment, or other times, especially when we really project onto other people what we want them to do, it turns into a very tense standoff as we attempt to push our agendas through in these moments. In Israel, at the time of Jesus, such a thing was occurring. The people had heard God's promises and God's prophecies of a coming glory and restoration of his people. And they longed for a day when they would rise again, ruled by the promised Messiah. And so, as Jesus rode in Jerusalem, as recorded in the passage we have just read today, they celebrated. They celebrated the arrival of the Messiah whom they assumed would soon be ascending to his throne and righting all the wrongs they had experienced in their lives. However, they had missed the point. The Jews in Jesus' day, by and large, were extremely short-sighted. They saw only what they wanted to happen, and they could not see the fuller picture of why Jesus came. Now make no mistake, Jesus had come as the victorious king, but it wasn't the victory they expected he would win. He had come to secure a far greater victory on their behalf than overthrowing the Roman government. God promised Eve in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 that one day a deliverer would come and crush the head of the serpent. And as the prophet Isaiah promised, so Jesus had come. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, 4 through 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem, as recorded here in John chapter 12, is a day to be celebrated because it is an arrival that signals the coming of the greatest victory that could ever be won on behalf of mankind. But it is also a somber event. For here, the perfect spotless Lamb of God arrives in the holy city preparing to give his life a ransom for many. You know what you could say of this passage today? The king has come to die. Let us observe the Lamb's arrival together today and see that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Do our trust and praise as he is God's appointed substitute for us. That is a very important thing that we wrap our heads around as Christians or as those maybe perhaps who have never trusted Christ. You must understand that Jesus has come as God's substitute for us because someone has to die for sin. That's the way it is. That's what the law of God requires. Jesus came as the Lamb of God given to take our place. And what we see is, as he rides into Jerusalem that day, we see the, the reactions, we see the, the reception that, that he experiences and the reactions that go on. And we, we see and, and we marvel even at some of the misunderstandings that take place. But may that frame into our own hearts and lives exactly who Jesus is and may it inform our praise and our trust in him today. 
We see here in verses 12 through 15 the remarkable entrance that takes place as Jesus enters the city. And in verses 12 and 13, you you begin to see that the people are stirred by what happens. It says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So John transitions us here from what has happened at the beginning of John 12, where Jesus was anointed in Bethany by Mary, anticipating his death and burial, to what happens next, very simply by saying this is what happens the next day. The disciples have just witnessed what happened in Mary's incredible display of love for her Lord. Judas was rebuked by Jesus for his selfish remarks and attitudes. And as we said last time, When Jesus reproached Judas for what he had done, Judas, again, stands at his own crossroads of conviction and belief. What will he do with what Jesus has shown him in his life? And I think it's interesting that we kind of um, at least understand the context of what's going on, even while everything else is going on. So Judas had, had, had... looked at what Mary had done, and he had claimed, you know, we should have, that should have been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor. And John, of course, tells us that Judas had no interest in helping the poor. He was only interested in getting what he could out of this arrangement because he's showing he doesn't believe in who Jesus is. And so that night, following the anointing in Bethany, when Judas stood at that crossroads of what are you going to do with what Jesus has done in his life, Matthew tells us in Matthew 26, 14 through 16, then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him, that is Jesus, over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. That same night after what had just happened, Judas walked with Jesus, he observed his signs, and he still turned away. He was so consumed with what he may gain out of this arrangement that he was willing to be the inside man to help fulfill the religious leader's plan regarding Jesus. And so what we see is the plan of God regarding Jesus' sacrifice is now coming to a head. Throughout the book of John, there have been several instances where the Jews have attempted to carry out the death of Jesus. There have been times when they threatened to stone him. There have been times they tried to seize him. But every time this was going to happen, Jesus left. He was able to to move away because he is the sovereign God who is in control. Now Jesus knows that the time of his death is coming soon. And so here's something that's an interesting turn of events. When Jesus before has been preventing his death to come prematurely, now he is forcing the issue, making sure it happens in the time of God's plan. This is because the religious leaders had decided that they were going to wait to carry out their plan. We read in Matthew 26, verses 3 through 5, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name Caiaphas and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. The feast that's referred to there is the Passover that's, that's preparing to take place. These men, fearing the feelings of the crowd that were gathering for Passover, what they're doing is seeking to prevent things from getting out of hand, right? 
Jesus, though, would once again prove to be the sovereign God, forcing them to carry out their plan in God's perfect timing. Now, one of the things we need to recognize is that no one is innocent of his or her choices or robbed of their ability to choose their own actions. God holds us accountable for the choices and the decisions we make. God gives us the free will to make these choices. Yet, at the same time, no one operates outside of God's omniscience and sovereign control. And you say, well, I don't understand how all of that works together. Welcome to the club, okay? We don't understand how a sovereign, omniscient, eternal, infinite God works with everything that we experience in our lives sometimes, But understand that that tension exists, and no one operates outside of that tension. Jesus knew that his entrance into Jerusalem would engender a reaction from the crowd. He also knew that the same reaction would turn into anger from the religious leaders, forcing them to take whatever that next step was to be in their plan. And so Jesus begins to make his way into Jerusalem. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, his entrance is the fulfillment of an incredible Old Testament prophecy. If you were to study the book of Daniel, in Daniel 9, you would come across something what is commonly referred to as Daniel's 70 weeks. Now, these weeks that are recorded in Daniel are periods of seven years. And it was predicted that there would be 483 years from the time of the decree that called for the rebuilding of the temple to the time of the Messiah's death. And with Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem on this day that's recorded in John 12, yet another prophecy is fulfilled in him. It was a day all the religious leaders, frankly, should have known was coming. They would unwittingly then fulfill this prophecy. And as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, we see here he's not alone. What we read is, as we read of these ones in the section of John, there are those in the crowd who have heard of Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem. It says that the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. These are the people who are going to go out to meet Jesus as he comes in. Now, there really are two groups that are going to be represented here as we unfold this passage. The first group is the one we just mentioned. They've come to Jerusalem. They're there preparing themselves for the feast, as we read back in John chapter 11. But if you'll remember from last time, there is also another group of people who had left Jerusalem, and they had come to Bethany to see Jesus and Lazarus. So what happens is those people who are in Bethany, are, presumably they leave with Jesus to come towards Jerusalem for the feast, and you have the people coming out of Jerusalem to meet him. There's, there's the, the crowd, we have no idea how many are there that do this, but we get the impression here it's a, it's a pretty big crowd that's gathering as Jesus prepares to enter the city. We know that Jesus was being sought in Jerusalem by those preparing themselves for the Passover, and so as they hear he is coming, they run out to meet him, and what we read here is they greet him with palm branches. Now, these branches would have been secured from the date palm trees that are abundant there in the area of Jerusalem. And during the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, palm branches have become a symbol of victory and celebration. There's some things that happened in the history of Israel and, and, and the, the, uh, the wars and the things that they were part of. They used palm branches to celebrate victory um, and, and, and um, over their enemies in, the, in war. 
And so now they wave these palm branches celebrating Jesus, their Messiah. And they begin to cry out here, Hosanna. Hosanna is an interesting phrase and word. Literally, the word Hosanna translates to save now. That's what they're crying out to Jesus, save now. The people were riding high on the emotion of the Passover and everything that meant in their history. They're also now convinced of Jesus' power after his recent sign of raising Lazarus from the dead. And so they wished him to now overthrow the Roman government, becoming the Messiah they longed for, who would free them from bondage and establish his kingdom, ruling on the throne of David. They cry out praise to him. And what you read here at the end of verse 13, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, is a quote from Psalm 118, verse 26. They're hailing Jesus as the king because that's what they expect him to do. They expect him to come in and fulfill their messianic hopes and dreams. But even as Jesus entered, we see it was not with all the pomp one may have hoped for in their idea for a Messiah. In verses 14 and 15, you see the prophecies that are being fulfilled by Jesus even as he enters. It says, And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, fulfilling that prophecy of Daniel, we observe now how he arrives. John mentions here that Jesus is sitting on a young donkey. We read from the the synoptics, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that we know that Jesus instructed his disciples on where they would find this donkey, and that, in, and in fact, we know that they returned not only with the young donkey, but with its mother as well. And so it's actually quite possible that while Jesus is riding on the younger donkey, that the mother is also being led through the streets, perhaps in, in a way to, to keep the younger donkey docile. And also we learn in these accounts that the crowd that went before Jesus began to spread their clothes and branches on the road before Jesus. This is a sign of homage that is paid to royalty. So let us note then here, Jesus' riding on, on a donkey, while not unheard of, is nevertheless not what the people had pictured. If Jesus was a conquering king coming to overthrow the Roman oppressors, One might expect to find him atop a war horse or riding in a chariot, would they not? Yet, instead, he comes on a beast of burden. And undoubtedly, I mean, all of these people are gathering. The Romans are taking note of what's going on. If you know that the Passover is a big deal and nationalistic feelings are going to run high, and if you're the occupying force, you're going to take note of what's going on around these times. And as the Romans observe what is going on, it it probably doesn't strike them as something that they should really be afraid of because here's a guy riding into town, people are celebrating him, he's coming on a donkey. He's not on this horse, he's not in this chariot, he doesn't have an army behind him. In fact, it may have seemed not only odd but laughable to them that this Messiah of Israel came in on this donkey. But even this is a fulfillment of what has been prophesied regarding Jesus. For one, Isaiah tells us that Jesus was to come as the Prince of Peace. 
He came in humility. He lived in humility, carrying out the work of God. As we read this morning in our scripture reading from Philippians chapter 2, that he took upon him the form of a servant and being found in the likeness of men, humbled himself even unto death, the death of the cross. He had not come to subject the nations, but to deliver the crushing blow to Satan, proclaiming peace to all who trust in him. And for another fulfillment, we have John's quotation here from Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 reads as such, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Obviously, If you were to compare this passage and what we just read in John, this is not a direct quotation that John makes from Zechariah 9.9. In fact, you notice at the very beginning in verse 15, John says, fear not. And that seems to come from another passage. Many believe it comes from Isaiah 40, verse 9. And we have to ask ourselves, why is it? Why is it that John would take some of these passages and use them together or, or, or quote them in this way? Well, perhaps it has to do with John's whole purpose of his gospel. The people here are crying to Jesus for salvation as they cry out, Hosanna, save now, and salvation would come, but not in the way they expected it. They sought salvation through the death of their enemies. To them, that is what salvation meant. The Romans would be overthrown, they, they would, the, the enemies would die at the hand of the Messiah. But Jesus would give them salvation through his death for his enemies. That's why Jesus came. You would expect a king entering a city with such a reception would be coming to sit on the throne to reign. Jesus entered the city with such a reception so that he could die on a cross, bearing the shame of sin. And though he would be sacrificed, there would be no reason to fear. The readers of John's gospel need not fear the death of Jesus, for it is that death that gives us life. It is his sacrifice which will lead to the greatest victory ever won over sin, death, and hell. And so here he enters, the Prince of Peace who will make peace with God for all. The entrance of Jesus is perhaps not as triumphant then as some would think, right? He did not come thundering in on a white horse with a sword in his hand. He came humbly like the lambs also being brought in for the Passover. But make no mistake, there would be a victory won by the King of Kings. And the cry of the people is the cry that we need to echo today. Today. It's the day of salvation. Today is the day to trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Today is the day to throw yourself at his feet, crying, save now, as you trust him for victory from your sin. Jesus, the Lamb of God, enters the holy city. And as he enters, we observe once again the reactions of different groups. We see here in the rest of this passage the reactions 
to the Lamb. And the first one we want to note is the reactions of his own disciples in verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. We've seen throughout Jesus' ministry that even his closest disciples did not understand why he came. They, along with countless others, felt he had come to set up his kingdom and to reign and rule for eternity. They didn't understand the prophecies being fulfilled before their very eyes. As you read this passage, you read verse 16, I don't know about you, but I almost can feel John recalling in his own mind the misunderstanding and blindness of his own heart in that moment. However, one day they would understand these things. For when Jesus would ascend to the Father, the Holy Spirit would come. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, would guide them in understanding all of these things. And that same Holy Spirit that that came after Jesus ascended at the beginning of the church age, God's Spirit is still in our hearts today in the same way as we know Him as our Savior. Convicts us of sin. He shows us the truth of who Jesus is. He calls for our belief in Him. You, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have experienced the conviction of sin in your life and been confronted with the truth of the gospel, you have felt the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart and life as he has convicted you and showed you your need to trust him. And if you have trusted in him and you do have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit continues to work in your heart and life as a believer, as a disciple. He uses God's word to continue to grow us in himself. As disciples, we must be given to the study of God's word, asking him to use his Holy Spirit to teach us, to convict us of sin that's tolerated in our lives, and to show us with what his word means for our lives today. When you sit down to read the word of God, you need God's help to understand that word. You need his Holy Spirit to illuminate to your heart and life. As a pastor, I am burdened that you study the Word of God for yourself. I've said this to some of you in here before, um, kind of as a joke, and I think about it this way. In some ways, it's my job to work myself out of a job in your life. I am to teach you how to study the Word of God, because that is something you, as a believer, need to do for yourself. Now, at the same time, I hope and pray you are fed by the Word of God here Each week, I I take great effort to make sure that when you come into this place, you hear the word of God. And the church is necessary, okay? I'm not working on myself, I have a job in that way. We are called to assemble together to hear the teaching and preaching of the word of God. I, I perform that ministry of the word of God that he has entrusted with me and called me to. But at the same time, I want to help make sure that fellow believers are successful in their study of the word of God. I may have a special calling of God on my life to be an under-shepherd for the good shepherd, but make no mistake, I have no special, particular spiritual insight that you do not have. I have the Holy Spirit the same as any other believer, and I'm able to use the same tools and resources available to you. You can and must study God's Word for yourself. Only then can you be the type of disciple God calls you to be. Only then can you be the type of church member 
God wants you to be. You understand that the success of a corporate body of believers, the success of Beaverton Baptist Church depends heavily on your personal commitment to spend time with God. Doesn't ride just on the pastor or the deacons or what we do on Sunday or Wednesday or any other day of the week. It rides heavily on the choices that you make as a disciple and as one who has adjoined yourself to this body. You say, well, that's a heavy burden. Yes, it is. That we need to spend time with God, that we need to, to make time to be with our Lord and Savior. The disciples would later give themselves to the word and prayer so they may carry out their calling in the church. We read of that in Acts chapter 6. They would see God continue to grow them. But for the moment in this passage, the significance of everything that had happened was still lost on them. And one day, they would see it all clearly. Today, you and I have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit at salvation. May we continue to serve God as he has called us to. So here are the disciples, lost in the moment of what they have seen, though God is going to use that in their hearts later. Yet still others are caught up in the excitement of everything that's going on. We see the crowd's response in verses 17 and 18. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The masses that lined the road and met Jesus for his arrival into Jerusalem, we have to understand these are not overwhelmingly believers in who Jesus is. Now, they are witnesses of his power. They are beholders of his authority. But they have not given themselves to him in the way he called them to commit. They look upon Jesus with fascination and wonder. They penned their messianic dreams to him, and they reasoned. If he could raise a man from the dead four days after he passed away, well, he can certainly overthrow the Gentile dogs who have taken over our nation. That's the thinking here. However, it will only be a few short days later that everything would change. The emotional response that they are experiencing now of fascination is going to change to that of rejection, condemning him to his death. This is not the way of true disciples. Following Jesus is not an emotional response. Why just feel like I should follow Jesus? If we make an emotional response to, to, to call on him, to depend on him, that doesn't have any weight to it. Because one day, you know what you're not going to feel like doing? You're not going to feel like following Jesus. I could go around this room. We're not going to do this, okay? But I could. I could go around this room and talk to you that have walked with God for any number of time in your life. And I could ask you this question. You, as a Christian, have you ever woken up on a day and never felt not very Christian? Some of you would, probably most or all of us would say, be honest and say, yeah. Some of you might say, yeah, today, right? That's why we don't follow our feelings. We follow the truth. We follow the word of God. 
True disciples place faith in who Jesus is, and they persevere in him. That is because faith isn't based in what Jesus can do for me or in how Jesus fits my agenda. Faith is based in who Jesus is. Now, it certainly results in Jesus doing a great work in my life. And it certainly results in me having feelings about who Jesus is, right? Because if I went around and said, now how many of you as a Christian, you feel great love for Jesus? Well, yes, I feel that. But you know where that comes from? We love him because he first loved us. God creates that love in his disciples. It recognizes Jesus, faith, true faith recognizes Jesus as the incarnate word, God the Son and God himself. And this emotional response of the crowd is quite shallow. And as I said, you'll see it vacillate here throughout the next few chapters. But as shallow as that response is, it's at the same time now creating another response. In verse 19, we see the response of the Pharisees. It says here, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The whole scene of Jesus' entrance unnerves the Pharisees. Now, last time uh, we looked at those who were plotting to kill Lazarus, and that, that group was focused on the Sadducees. The Sadducees deny the resurrection, therefore Lazarus is a threat to them and their agendas. Here, we're looking at the Pharisees. Now, Unlike the Sadducees, the Pharisees did not compromise with the Roman government. At the same time, there's another group. We haven't really talked about this group. There's another group that has formed in Israel during this time. They're they're called the Zealots. They're those who are out and out opposed to the Roman government. And so they're not like them either. They look at what has taken place now. They're kind of in the middle, and they're growing concerned. They fear the implications of what is happening. Now, they're overstating here what is happening. It is certainly not true that the world, that everyone there is going after Jesus as Jesus had called them to follow. But it sure looks like the overwhelming majority is supporting Jesus, especially this day that's recorded. And so their power and their hold on the people as the self-righteous leaders of Israel, they fear is in jeopardy. And the possibility of there being an uprising against the Romans, bringing down consequences on the nation, now seems imminent to them. The religious leaders had met, as we read in Matthew, and they wished to wait until after the Passover to carry out their plot against Jesus. They thought that by doing so, they would benefit the most from it, as it would not play into this feared uprising against the government or against themselves. However, It says, now here, there seems to be nothing gained by waiting. That's what it says here. You see that you are gaining nothing. That's referring back to by waiting until after the feast is over. What what are they doing? They're seeking to accelerate the timeline now. They fear the uprising is going to happen anyway. And so, we see God's sovereignty is moving things forward as is perfect in God's plan. And next time... In a few weeks, we'll be in the book of John together. We're going to see there's yet another group that responds to everything that goes on here. But I want to take time and talk through that uh, in its own message as we see some Gentiles who are present when this happens. But today, let us see the Lamb of God. 
preparing to take away the sins of the world. Let us hear his call to all who will trust in him. And let us see the rejection and the dullness of his own who would not receive him, though he showed himself as the promised Messiah. And let us give to him the glory due his name, the Prince of Peace, who won our peace with God. Jesus is the Lamb of God, do our trust and praise as he is God's appointed substitute for us. Jesus is the conquering king. When he came to earth the first time, he came to conquer the powers of death and hell. And he accomplished this in God's perfect plan and God's perfect timing. The lamb arrived in Jerusalem nearly 2,000 years ago. And he lives today to offer you life in himself. That's the theme of the book of John. Life in Jesus, the son of God. Jesus died so you could have life. His victory can be your victory. This comes to you by faith in him. God's holiness means that he cannot tolerate your sin. His justice means that he will judge you for sin committed against him. But God's love and grace mean that he is reached down to you and offers you salvation from sin and death as a gift. So the question is, will you trust him today? Will you give your love and life to him? And if you do, you will find him to be trustworthy and true. Christian, you're called to be a disciple. That's the life that you find in Jesus. Now, disciples aren't perfect. Amen? Okay, some of you haven't figured that out yet, but that's okay. Disciples aren't perfect. But you know what disciples are? They're growing. Are you growing in the Lord? Are you spending time with him? Are you asking him to teach you from his word? John reflected on his own and the, others, the other disciples' misunderstanding of the, of the day that we studied today. But he also saw the growth and change that he experienced in his life by the grace of God. As a disciple, give yourself to pursuing the things of God. Give yourself to obeying the word of God and the conviction of God in your life. So many times, discipleship, Christianity is looked at this way. Well, that's just a list of do's and don'ts. If you do the do's and don't the don'ts, then you're good. My friend, if that's how you view Christianity, you have not seen the grace of God. And if that's the way that you view your spiritual walk with God, you need to be filled up with a fresh vision of who God is in his word. Christianity isn't a list of do's and don'ts. Now, are there things that Christians do and Christians don't do? Yeah. But it can't be found in a list that some pastor writes. It's found in the word of God and his work in our hearts and lives. What we need to give ourselves to is not a list of do this and don't do this, but we need to give ourselves to living a life consumed with God and following him. Disciples don't hide in the dark, they live in the light. And live, they live for the glory of God. May we cast off the sin that seeks to entangle us through the power of God and exalt Jesus, the King of Kings, with our lives today. Father, thank you for your word and its power to change our lives. Thank you for what you have recorded here for us to read today.
Thank you for helping us to see Jesus as he is, high and lifted up. Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Lord, thank you that though the disciples and those gathered there that day did not fully understand what was going on, that did not deter or change your plans. Jesus still fulfilled the mission. Lord, today, thank you for bringing us here to hear the truth once again. I pray today for one who is wrestling with these things, who has never trusted you, who has maybe said some good things or thought they had said some or thought they had trusted in you, but has come to realization they trust in their own actions or words or prayers and not in Jesus Christ alone, that you would once again expose to them the truth of who they are and their need to trust in you. Lord, would you give them the courage and the boldness and the strength and the faith today to follow you in faith. Help them to see that there is hope in life in you. Lord, for Christians here today, I pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and lives. We wrestle with so many things in this world that vies that for our attention. Lord, if we're honest, we fail more times than we care to admit. But thank you for your grace that restores us, that calls us back to you. And I pray that you would have the freedom to do your work in our hearts today. You would break down the walls of resistance that we have held, tried to hold up in our lives. Help us to realize it's pointless. Because all we're doing is keeping ourselves from enjoying a full relationship with you. May we submit ourselves in humility to the King of Kings. Be with us now as we leave here today. Watch over, protect us. We pray that you would bring us here again tonight to worship you, to study your word together. In your name we pray. Amen.